Welcome, happy Friday. Today is Friday, November the 18th, and this is episode number 184 of Backyard Beekeeping Questions and Answers. I'm Frederick Dunn, and this is The Way to Be. So thanks for being here. Did you check out our weather in the opening? Of course you did. You're watching right now. We have snow coming down everywhere. How cold is it while that snow is coming down? 29 degrees Fahrenheit, which is minus 2 Celsius. That's not bad, temperature-wise. But the snow is going to come down so heavy. And guess what? I'm right in the little triangle that they show on the map that our meteorologists are telling us are going to get a heavy hit. And those who live in Buffalo, Buffalo, New York, where Buffalo Wild Wings were developed, they're going to get a heavy hit. In fact, they're telling people their biggest problem right there, they said, the mayor of Buffalo said, the biggest problem is common sense. So people are just out and about when they don't need to be. So anyway... What does that got to do with you? Nothing. If you want to know what we're going to talk about today, please look down in the video description below. You'll see related links and all the topics that we're going to cover. How do you submit a topic for consideration? You go to my website. The website is called thewaytobe.org. And then there's a page there called The Way to Be. That's where the form is. You can fill it out. You can be anonymous if you want to. I mean, I like to know who you are and where you're from and stuff like that. But if you don't want to give that information, that's just fine. All the topics that we're going to talk about today were submitted during the past week. Trying to keep it fresh, keep things rolling. And uh, we did a breakfast at IHOP, so that was pretty neat. Saturday, the Northwest Pennsylvania Beekeepers Association. If you're a member and you're watching this, you need to be at Edinburgh University Compton Hall, 10 a.m. We're going to learn about... Uh, honeybee uh, treatments, apitherapy, and you're going to learn how to collect royal jelly and things like that. So if you're a member of our association, I hope to see you there Saturday morning, 10 a.m. Because the heavy snows aren't going to hit until Saturday night, you don't have any excuses. So what else do I have to talk about right now? Let's just jump right into it. Now several people, so something must be in the air, because several people asked me the same thing over the past week. Tom and John... So Tom Snyder from Shelton, Washington, and John through email. Have you heard of or tried a product called HiveGuard using thymol? And you know, I mess it up all the time. It's spelled thymol, T-H-Y-M-O-L, but we're supposed to say thymol because it's thyme oil. Anyway, it's for thymol control. So that was it. And then I got another nice long Email from uh, John, who also wanted to know, interesting use of thymol, part of an entrance reducer. Other than wondering how well it works, also wonder about possible increased resistance to thymol as a miticide. So thymol, it's, uh, it's an essential oil treatment. But here's the best part. Who developed it? Her name is Raina Jane. I'm going to spell it for you. Get your pen if you want to write it down. R-A-I-N-A. J-A-I-N. She's from Greenwich, Connecticut. So she also was supposed to go to Yukon. So it's been a couple of years. Uh, they started talking about this in 2000. I gave a brief uh, deal about that too because it was novel. She's a super bright star, of course, for a high school senior to get that kind of traction and get all this interest. She got thousands of units out there. Beekeepers were testing them. Randy Oliver was on the list. She said the only reason she didn't get Randy Oliver at Scientific Beekeeping 
to test her stuff was because of COVID restrictions. So now, here we are in 2022, there should have been some progress. But I'll answer the questions, and I'll also give you my thoughts, my candid thoughts about why I think it's not going to get traction. I mean, I, I think it's great that somebody comes up with that, that she had the wherewithal to 3D print these out, and what they were, or what they are now, in fact, they're for sale, so I'll talk about that too. But uh, it's an entrance that goes over your normal entrance reducer, and it has holes in it. And it's pretty thick, too, because the whole point is to get your bees to spend more time going through the holes to enter the hive or depart. But primarily, those foragers that are returning, they rub through the entrance, although it's big enough, you know, for them to get through. They're not resisted at all going through it. They get a dose of thymol. And then the dose just continues light doses, but it's continual. And so that's going to create an environment hostile to our friend, the Varroa destructor might, and it's supposed to kill them. So let's talk about that. And that's why it was kind of cool to think about it because um, it wouldn't be damaging. It wouldn't store in the honeycomb, for example. So it wouldn't be in the lipids. It wouldn't build up in beeswax. So looked pretty good there. Uh, the problem was, here's the length of treatment. It has to be on your entrance for three weeks. At three weeks, based on the studies, it's hard to get a hold of detailed studies showing what the results really are because I don't know of any publication yet. So if you know of a published study involving this um, hive gate, let me make sure I say it right. Hive gate is one. This is hive guard. I'm sorry, it's too close here. Hive gate, so a different entrance. This is hive guard. So anyway, it has to be on for three weeks. The efficacy, in other words, the percentage of mites that were killed was 70%. And this is why I think it's not going to get traction. She also has a website right now. And I'm going to link that down below so you can look at it. I think this website is a work in progress because there's a lot of write-ups and things in there that are not complete, that don't really match up. And she's selling beehive equipment, uh, native pollinator houses, uh, vegan friendly uh, beekeeper gloves and things like that. Um, so in other words, they're not made from animal uh, hides and so forth. But uh, one of these, and they're out of stock right now. So for those of you who like to buy things for people for Christmas, you can't buy one. They're $30 each. Now I also was looking at the right up there and I couldn't find any information. So $30 for that entrance that they go through that has the thymol, thymol treatment and uh, can you recharge it? Does it come pre-impregnated? Uh, in other words, after this three-week treatment with 70% efficacy, do you have to replace it with a brand new one or can they be reworked? I have a lot of questions. I reached out to them. So in their contact information, all there is is the opportunity for you to provide them with your contact information. They don't provide their contact information, but I reached out and I told them, introduced myself and said I would really love to do an interview. So uh, I want to know more about it. But if you're only getting 70% efficacy with that, there are other treatments that have a higher effective rate against varrodestructor mites. They're cheaper. Uh, oxalic acid, for example, oxalic acid vaporization has a higher rate. And if you're going to do a three-week treatment, you could have done multiple treatments with oxalic acid and not had to impede their progress they're, you know, going in or coming from the hive through an entrance that has to be specifically designed and placed. 
And uh, I think hmm, it might be losing traction. But that's what it is. It's a Tylenol treatment. Raina Jane is uh, the girl's name that came up with it. She's now 20 and at the University of Connecticut. Yukon Huskies. Anyway, uh, that's it. That's what I know about it. If I know more, if I get an interview, you'll be able to watch it too. There is a page on my website at thewaytobe.org uh, that is interviews with experts. So you can see what's going on. I try to talk to people that are in the know on a variety of topics related to beekeeping. Question number two, moving right along, comes from Christy. And uh, Quebec City in Canada. Ag Zone 4 here, like you, do you ever or should you ever open the flow hive pest management tray below the hive in winter? Um, it depends on which flow hive pest management tray you have down there. The older ones, they're white plastic. I knew I didn't have one in here. Uh, they had square edges. So in other words, the way these trays are, they go underneath your flow hives. If water and stuff blows in there, and often it does, then it gets trapped in the tray. Now, uh, the newer trays from Flow Hive, which you can find all this stuff at a website called honeyflow.com. Uh, the new trays have little beveled edges on them. So for example, if water built up in there and it froze, it would expand and just rise up out of the tray. The original white plastic trays that go in there have 90 degree angles everywhere. So when water condensation got in there, and if you live you know, in an area like I do or where you do there in zone four, it's gonna freeze. So the water in there freezes, expands, cracks out the tray. So the original white trays are super brittle. So yes, in wintertime, I'd pull them out, but here's the thing. And, and it's something I talk about often when it comes to flow hive people that have the removable trays, which by the way are fantastic for seeing what's going on in your hive, mite drops, everything else. Um, have several trays. They only come with one, but you can go to their website and buy spares. And I have spares on the rack. That's because I want to limit the exposure and not just in wintertime. But when you go out there in the wintertime, you're not going to lose a lot of heat through the bottom of the hive when you pull it out. Uh, but when you pull the tray out, you should have another tray ready to go and put it right in. Have a clean one. I have a whole bunch of clean ones ready to go. So you're sliding that one out, you're sliding the other one in, you're closing it up. And by the way, there's an adjustable vent in the back of your flow hive. So now we're in the closed vent position for winter time. So the little vent should be on the bottom. And uh, that's year round because even in spring or summer, when you're going to pull the tray and clean it, for example, uh, just have a clean one ready to go, put it in, pull the other one out and then clean it at your leisure. Do them all at the same time. Because during nectar flows, for example, if uh, detritus, water, everything else falls in there, you want to clean it out. But uh, we don't want to leave that open for very long. And it's really not open, open. There's an aluminum, which if you're in New South Wales, it's aluminum. And it covers the bottom and it's a grate, right? So the bees can't pass through there. But what happens is bees fly by, they smell nectar, they go up, they get up under there. And the next thing you know, I get an email from somebody saying, hey, how are the bees getting down in my tray? And then I always ask, well, did you recently pull your tray and clean it or something? Yeah, how'd you know that? Well, because while your tray was out, bees went in, got up underneath, you didn't see them, you put your tray back in, and now they were trapped in there and they had nowhere to go. So also during nectar flows and things like that, or you want to do mite counts, mite drops after you did a treatment, for example, pull out the tray, put the new one in, have a clean one. 
But to answer this question specifically, the new kind of yellow colored trays are good to go year round. You don't have to worry about them freezing and cracking. If they're the white ones, you either swap them out to make sure water's not accumulating and freezing, or you flip them upside down so now they don't hold anything. And if water and moisture drips down on that tray, it just runs off and down the side so you're no longer doing integrated pest management trapping. So those are all the options I think there. But I have extra trays just because it makes it easier. Have it clean, ready to go, go out there, swap them out. Question number three. This is from uh, Dahlia or Dahlia. I'm sorry for that. City is Cork in Ireland. It says, last autumn I pulled my first honey from one hive. It was rainy October and I pulled it late due to inexperience. I follow Dr. Leo Sharashkin's horizontal hive and practice. So for those of you who don't know, Dr. Leo Sharashkin lives in Missouri. He lives in the Ozarks and he has a website called horizontalhive.com if you want to check him out. So the honey I pulled was 21% moisture content. So I put it in the fridge. It immediately thickened and I love the creamy consistency. So after a week or so, I pulled it out of the fridge. When I tasted the honey, it is very good and has a deep, nice taste. But a common complaint by my family members is that it's too sweet. So, but I want to back up for a second. If it's 21% water, you want to get that 21% down before you store it anywhere. Refrigeration won't stop fermentation. Putting in the freezer will stop fermentation. It doesn't freeze, but it's at a low enough temperature that it prevents the fermentation process from happening. But fermentation can still occur in your refrigerator. So that's the one thing I wanted to say about that. And then goes on to say, I don't eat much honey myself, so I'm not the expert in eating honey. But for me, the best part is the capping left over after receiving the honey. Do you have an explanation why my honey is too sweet? I'm wondering, is it due to putting it in the fridge or maybe it's just the nectar and foraging options around my area? I live in a rural area where I have a few fields and forests nearby. I would have expected it to be less sweet due to the high moisture content. Okay, so this is one of those things that we're just going to talk about honey. What's it for? Because when it gets right down to it, the complaint that honey is too sweet. I don't know. That's the first time I've ever heard anyone say that. When you're consuming the honey, you can thin it down. You know, so you can you can water it down. You can mix it with something else, or you can use less of it if it's too sweet. Most people go for it because it has the high sweetness, including the bees. What are the bees trying to do with honey? They concentrate the sugars as much as they possibly can. Because those sugars are going to convert to carbohydrates, which are an energy source. So the higher the sweetness, the higher the sugar content, the more impact it's going to have on the bees as a source for energy, carbohydrate. So we just happen to be taking it from the bees. They really want their sugar content up as high as possible. So it really gets down, you know, the moisture content getting out of there. Uh, down to about 15% max. I don't know if I've ever seen one really in the 14s. Uh, and actually, if it's too concentrated, it can be disqualified from some honey competitions, by the way. But uh, when it comes to high sweetness, why does it taste so sweet? I think honey has a lot of different flavors, uh, which can, you know, it's 
contributed by the floral source. So the flavors, they can taste sweeter. Like for example, if it were a mint source, uh, then it wouldn't probably taste as sweet as it otherwise might. So this could have something to do with the source because the sugar content uh, should be high. It should taste sweet. That's the whole point of it being honey. And that's why the bees do what they do. But the 21%, we should definitely dehydrate that down. You want it under 19, usually. Because we don't want fermentation. Get it under 18 and it won't ferment. Get it between 18 and 19, it could. But it shouldn't, but it could. And the creaminess just comes from the granulation of uh, the honey. So it is setting. It's uh, becoming crystallized honey. And... Uh, even crystallized honey, sometimes you can smell it. It can uh, smell like it's fermenting. Also, sometimes you look at, see little edges that are foamy, like part of it crystallizes, but part of it stays liquid, and they see this little foamy edge up there. That is hydrogen peroxide. That's the honey trying to defend itself. It's pretty interesting too. So hydrogen peroxide can be a byproduct of your honey. Let's go to question number four, Renee from Ellenville, New York. I'm thinking about getting a bee weaver queen next year. Is there any danger I can be bringing Africanized genetics to New York with one of them? Anytime you get bees from the South these days, any queens from the South could potentially have Africanized uh, bee genetics in them. And so, uh, but the bee weaver line has been calm for a long time. And they do have some Africanized traits in their history, but they also have buckfast bees and a lot of other positive traits. So the bee weaver line, I get those, and I have not had a hot hive from bee weavers. My hottest colonies were Italians, actually, uh, that I had here. So um, overall, no. When will you know? When will you know when you bought in a queen if your colony is getting hot genetics from that queen? Well, we're at least a minimum. If she's a super performing queen and she gets in there and lays her eggs right away, you know you're 20, 21 days minimum out from seeing the adult bees. Even longer than that, because usually those are the nurse bees, they're less defensive, and as they get older, uh, they mature, harden up, and uh, become capable of stinging, defending the hive, uh, and are more apt to do so. So, if you bought a new queen from any source, and let's say 28 to 30 days out, you would begin to see a disposition shift as every bee in the hive that's new there would be from that queen. And then by then you would pretty much know that the temperament of that colony comes from that queen. So, but I don't worry about the bee weaver stuff. And they just did an interview and I linked it in my shout out a few episodes ago. One of their oldest, uh, queen grafters and he's part of the breeding operation and he's a fantastic guy he's been there forever uh, because the bee weaver family there in sarasota texas has a constant flow of visitors there they have a shop they have a school they sell stuff uh, so they've got guests and visitors all the time and they have breeding yards uh, not too far and of course their apiaries are right there as well but um, they can't afford to have hot stock there so they are vigilant about keeping their bees under control and not having hot hives because it's a liability. Liability for me here too, because I do portrait photography on my land. I can't have a hot hive, period. Just can't. Can't take the risk having people here. Question number five, moving on, comes from Richard Clifton, Colorado. 
My question is, how do you keep the sticky propolis off of your expensive camera gear? Okay, so this goes for anyone that's doing photography, video work, every YouTuber uh, that does B videos is, has dealt with camera equipment and coming in contact with gear that's touching the bees, moving frames, getting propolis. What is propolis anyway? For those of you who are watching, you may be new, you might not have bees. So propolis is what they gather from normally trees, by the way. It's a resin and it's how trees protect themselves. It's how new buds are protected from insects getting on them. It's super sticky. And so foraging bees, uh, some are dedicated just to propolis collection and they load it on their hind legs just like pollen. Only difference is now instead of, you know, bright and uh, kind of soft looking, the way pollen looks kind of porous and, and soft and yellow or whatever color it happens to uh, be from the plant that they're getting it from its anthers, uh, you get the resin and it can be an amber color, but it's but the key is that it looks shiny. It looks like a little bead on there. In fact, the bees that come back with um, propolis on their legs, they can't get it off themselves. So when they get in the hive, the other bees come and take that off. And some of the greatest research on propolis and the benefits to your hive comes from the Spivak lab, Dr. Merla Spivak. So the thing of it is, um, it's everywhere and I like it because that shows that the hive is going to be really healthy. Now, if you're in a colder climate, you open up your hive and there's propolis joining all of your frames together, sealing all the cracks and crevices. It's also known as bee glue. When it's really cold, that stuff is tough. It's very rigid, but it's also easy to scrape. Chunks of it just come right off. But on a really hot day, it's very sticky. So here are your options. You have somebody else hold the camera equipment and uh, those are the people that are not interacting with the bees. Cayman Reynolds, for example, has the benefit of his wife, Laurel. She videos his stuff so he can get as dirty as he wants and she's going to be right there making the video for him. That's one way. Somebody else holds the camera. I work alone. So I set up sometimes multiple cameras and I put them on tripods. So I set them up ahead of time. Now, if I have to have a mobile cam, if I have to move something around so that I can share better with the viewers, I wear um, nitrile gloves. So I put the nitrile gloves on and do the work I need to do. Then I have to go and make adjustments to the camera. Now I have to take the glove off and uh, handle the camera equipment. Then I go back and put the gloves back on, or I might have to even get new gloves because we all know that when working in the heat, your hands get all sweaty and wet, and you're not getting that glove back on your hand. So... Nitrile gloves protect my camera equipment when I'm going between hives, things like that, or if I'm getting all gooey and sticky. Last thing I want to do is get propolis on camera equipment. That stuff is very tough, super sticky, very hard to get off. Now, recently it was kind of fun because I was doing time-lapsed uh, sequences with the GoPro Hero 11 Black Edition. And it has a battery pack on it so you can extend the time lapse because a GoPro camera, for example, even the, the best ones, their latest versions, when you're setting it out for time lapse, you're good for maybe five hours. I don't want it to quit on me. So many times in the past, what happened was you set it up for a time lapse recording and five hours, six hours in, it turns itself off and then the cool stuff happens. Then the storm comes through. Then the swarm leaves or whatever you're trying to record. But recently I was videoing the bees um, getting sugar syrup out of uh, open feeders. 
And of course, the camera was as close as I could possibly get it. Their closest focal distance to have things in sharp resolution, I found, is between 10 to 11 inches. So it was this close. And then, of course, the bees are getting sugar syrup. Now they're landing all over the camera equipment, the battery handle, and everything else. So it was a super sticky mess. And so I was thinking, hmm, yeah, GoPro is waterproof. You could wash it off if you wanted to. But because they had to modify it, to handle an auxiliary battery, now I had that connection open on the side, so spraying it down with water, not an option, but you know what I did? As soon as the bees were finished clearing out their feeders, I just put the camera back up there, and guess who cleaned it up? The bees. Bees and wasps were all over the camera, the grips, the handles, and everything else, so if it's sugar syrup related or honey related, let the bees clean it up. They do the best job ever, and then at the very end, you can touch it up with alcohol or something like that. But that's, those are my methods. Somebody else, tripod, some of the camera clamp, some holder, nitrile gloves, and to keep your camera gear clean. Thank goodness I've never had propolis. I've got some ruined uh, LED lights that, not ruined, but they're sticky forever because they have propolis on them and there's no great way to get it off. I suppose I could put them in the freezer and then while it's really cold, you know, it would be easier to scrape the propolis off because that's how some people get it out of Queen excluders, while I'm thinking, so if you have a plastic queen excluder, you put it in the freezer, break it out, snap it around, and the propolis comes right off of it because the bees will not clean up the propolis for you the way they did the sugar syrup. Question number six, moving on. Victor from Prince Anne, Maryland. What's going on here? Here's my question. Can a hive make it through my winter with little or almost no resources stored? It has been highs in the 60s and 70s, but now the highs are 40s and 50s. I was open feeding one-to-one sugar, which they devoured. I was told I should have two-to-one. Okay, that's true. Late in the year, really thick syrup or no syrup. But so what's being described here by Victor, it's a common problem that some people face. Late season swarms are in that situation. They haven't built up their resources. And that's why people were telling you two-to-one syrup. Uh, if you put out two to one or pro sweet, something nice and heavy like that, the bees move it to storage. So they are building a resource, but you ran out of time fast because already you're down in the 50s and the 40s even. So that's too cold for them to bring in something new. And we had this discussion recently uh, because people were talking about at our beekeeper breakfast, when to put the feed on, when to shift from liquid to solid. Well, um, there could... It's unbelievable, but a lot of the beekeepers had different uh, methods and uh, were kind of wondering when to take the solid off, when to put the liquid on. Oh, now it's cold again. Let's get the liquid off and let's put the solid back on. Here's what I do. I'm going to cut through the chafe right there. This will shock you. I'm going to mention Hive Alive Fondant. There's a link on my website. I have a Hive Alive page because I interviewed the owner of the company, Dara Scott. And uh, last winter was the first time I put this on my hives. But the question comes in, when do you put it on? Now, last year I was late putting it on some of the hives. So I didn't even get it on until the end of December on some of my hives. But that's because I didn't have enough of it. And uh, those hives did not do as well. They made it. They did not do as well. But let's say we've got a colony of bees that does not have the resources. Who else does that to their bees? A lot of commercial beekeepers go down to a single deep brood box and they take all the honey off. And then as soon as they take all the honey off, they put on 
bucket feeders or something like that. They feed every single hive out there. But I'm a backyard beekeeper. I don't do that because I've left them with the honey they need. But let's say they don't have the honey they need, as described by Victor. So you do have to get some kind of feeder on, but the time has passed. So what are you going to do? Put on a fondant or some other solid. But here's the thing. I did last year for my emergency feeding. I relied on my old methods, which were dry sugar. I put it up there with a rapid round feeder, which is what I've done. And that works. This, by the way, saved my bees year after year. This is designed for liquid or solid. Take the center part out. Now we're for solids. I used to fill this with dry sugar. Then I put this lid on and then the bees would go up underneath and they'd get up in here and they'd feed on the dry sugar. But uh, condensation would form up here, which was a good thing because then it would turn that dry sugar into a sugar brick and then the bees could consume it. But bees have to bring their own water with them to consume sugar bricks or dry sugar. Now they still need water when they're consuming honey in the hive. Not as much though. So they metabolize it a little quicker. So the advantage with the Hive Alive fondant or even other fondants, I'm not saying you can only use Hive Alive, but fondant works. So you cut the little hole in here and uh, this is where the discussion came in at breakfast the other day. Well, if you put it on now, they'll be eating it right now. And some people had said, well, they ate, you know, a little one inch diameter or two inch diameter hole already. And my argument for that was, not an argument, my discussion point was, so what, what if they did? What if they bypassed their own stored honey and went up and started eating this now? They have a resource, they're eating it, it's keeping them alive. This is what I would put on if I had a colony that didn't have enough resources and I was concerned about them surviving through winter. And the reason I try to direct you to my page, it's called Hive Alive Works, uh, is because there's links in there so that you can get this stuff. And yes, it's in stock. They've had problems with stocking this year because when people try it, they find out the bees use it, the bees do better, and then they want more of it. And then the company underestimates demand because they're in Ireland and they have to ship it to the United States and then redistribute from the United States. And then uh, everybody gets it and they run out of it. So it's two and a half pounds and just under $5 for that. So you can keep a hive alive, good name, uh, through winter with something like that. Now, is that going to give them an abundance of resources? No, it's an emergency feed, but it keeps them alive. I didn't lose any of the colonies that had it on. So I was very happy about that. And so that's what I would do. Uh, yeah, you've got a colony. I don't know how big the colony is. I don't know what status is of the queen. That place too. The population has to match the box that they're in. Uh, otherwise, if you've got a huge box, 10 frame box or something, and a little cluster that's occupying two frames, for example, they've got their work cut out for them. It's really, uh, that space is going to challenge them. And uh, you got to make sure that the food, the resource is directly over the top of them and I put it on top of the inner cover. That's what I would recommend if you want to get those through. And I hope that you'll touch base with us in spring. Tell us what you did, how it worked or didn't, and what you found in spring. It's too late to go changing everything around inside a hive. Question number seven comes from Gary. I just saw a clip on the Weather Channel that stated that research from the University of Maryland states honeybees' lifespan is half 
what it was in the 1970s. 17 days is the average bee lifespan as opposed to 34 days. Your thoughts, please. I'm going to make a guess. I mean, I didn't see that clip, but other people have, have talked about the same thing. Uh, they brought up recently, you know, that, hey, bees are living half as long. What's going on with that? Well, there's a lot contributing to that, I think. Um, has to do with management, too. I mean, the biggest people that play in genetics for bees are, of course, commercial people. A lot of commercial beekeepers replace their queens every single year. Uh, we have agricultural practices that cause our bees to live shorter lifespans. One of the things that uh, there's a company called Strong Microbials and Vera Strogolova is uh, one of the owners there. And you may have seen these advertisements in Bee Culture or the American Bee Journal. It's for direct fed microbials. So you'll see it listed as Super DFM and then for bees because they make it for other livestock too. And they're out of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. But one of the things that they brought up was this, uh, the lifespan, the reduced lifespan of the bees. And that's because they're exposed to a lot of other um, challenges that limit their health and their ability to metabolize resources, to metabolize food. And uh, so these microbials are damaged. So these are microbials that exist everywhere, but they boost them with the bees when they're adjacent to large agricultural operations. And that's because these large agricultural operations have pesticides in use. And when people hear the word pesticide, they think insecticide. But pesticides are for any pest control. So that includes fungicides and things like that. So insecticides are specific for insects. But when pesticides are in use, it affects the microbiome, the micro gut of the bee, which is the mid gut, which is where they're getting all the nutrients. So if we're looking at the abdomen of the bee, You've got the honey crop, which is what they're constantly using to carry water, for example, if they're getting nectar. And they're also putting honey in there when they're going to consume it themselves. But the mid-gut is where they're getting all of their nutrition. So anything that passes through the proventricula, which is the valve there, into the ventricula, which is the mid-gut. Sorry if I'm losing you, but uh, that's where they've decided that, that will increase longevity of the worker bees. So the problem is, I think that's a blanket statement, by the way. There's no way that my foragers are dying just 17 days um, into their life uh, because the reduction, the numbers would just be so profoundly low. So I think, uh, I mean, they're making a statement. You know, it has to be assigned to some geolocation, some type of bee because the genetics of the bees play, the environment that they're in play, you know. So for example, we mentioned Dr. Leo Sharashkin earlier, he's down in the Ozarks. The guy owns a thousand acres. So with a thousand acres of land at his disposal, he's got control. There's no pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, you know, there's nothing going on down there that would be detrimental to his bees. So he might be in a sweet spot, so to speak. But then uh, if you go to a website called bscape.org b-e-e-s-c-a-p-e.org and you put in your location there you'll find out what the pesticide loads are i will bet you well i can't really bet because you know can't afford it i'd probably lose but i suspect that 
When you see pesticide use numbers really high for your geolocation, I would expect that correspondingly your honeybees would have shorter lives. Quality of forage, impact of sub-lethal doses of pesticides getting into your bees. Because we know, for example, let's just say nozema spores. So nozema serrana, right? Uh, if those exist in the midgut, they may not necessarily kill the bee, but they reduce its ability to metabolize the resources it's getting. Therefore, its life is shorter. It's less healthy overall, and uh, it shortens their productive life. Therefore, the colony becomes less productive. So there's, there's lots of moving parts to this. And then let's say that you've got a queen breeding uh, program and you're replacing all your queens every year. Well, what queens are you breeding from and what's their longevity? So for example here, which I have zero impact, I'm sure, because I don't have enough colonies to have uh, an impact genetically on the environment. Um, but I try not to breed from queens that are less than two years old. And in the past, like the world record queen, the longest living queen bee that was still producing eggs, for example, was up to nine years or something like that. Now, that's not reality. I don't think it ever has been. Um, but so we're color coded for bees. So we expect them to go up to four years if it's a queen. Uh, but most people are going to try to commercial keepers often will say requeen every year. That's why they have these big requeening operations, these queen breeding programs to make sure that they can cycle out their bees for maximum productivity in the commercial bee market. So that's pollinator markets and things like that. So the more industrialized we become in our honeybee management, you could probably expect the you know, the longevity of the queens and maybe even the longevity of the workers to be somewhat reduced. So we're talking about all the way back to the 70s. I don't know, because in the 70s, they weren't doing very smart things. I think they might have in the early 70s still been using DDT and things like that. So it's got to be this big collection. The question is, what can you personally, as a backyard beekeeper, do about that? Well, if you notice that colonies aren't building as quickly as they should, these are things that tools that we use in observation to decide which colonies to continue our apiary from. If I had a colony that started small, stayed small, we've all had those, by the way, if you've been keeping bees for years, you get that little colony, they fill three or four frames, and then they just stagnate. In other words, they're replenishing themselves but they're not growing and filling the spaces that would require you to super the colony. So they just kind of stay in the same size. They don't get bigger, they don't get smaller, they're just kind of neutral. So if that's what you want, and you just want a backyard apiary of small colonies that can live in a single deep, and then maybe have a medium on it, and then they never get beyond that, and they never fill it completely, then uh, you've got that. So you wouldn't be encouraged to change that. On the other hand, I also personally don't want the colonies to get giganto and fill five, six boxes where I live because going into winter, those uh, colonies here, usually they're Italian derivatives. They crash in wintertime because there's just so many of them. And every year I think, yeah, that's my super colony. Look at them all. You know, I couldn't even condense it down because every box was wall to wall bees. But then come February or March, uh, you know, piles of dead bees coming out of it. So we're trying to find the happy medium, productivity, longevity, you know, you work with that in your small backyard scale, there's nothing you're gonna really do um, on that level 
about agriculture, land use. Land use has changed. So if we look at the way agriculture has grown, it's probably arguable to say whether that's good growth, but the way agriculture has grown, land use, the way the land is treated is profoundly different today than it was in the 70s. Soil preparation, uh, defeating weeds and other plants that are in an area that are about to grow corn or soy, which are number two, number one and two crops uh, in the United States because they're subsidized by the United States government. And uh, they just keep expanding the area. Go through the Midwest, go through Nebraska and see corn, how far that extends. And so the more land that gets turned over to crops and crop land, uh, the less land there is for diverse forage for bees. So it's just like you, if you ate the same thing every single day and didn't get diversity in your diet, then you would become nutritionally deficient somewhere. And, uh, but you know, we're not bees, but bees, biodiversity contributes to bee health. And of course, if you really wanted to play around, check out Strong, Strong Microbials Super DFM and make a comparison. Here's the other thing that people do. We're small scale backyard. It's fun to fiddle with the bees and see what's going on. Um, if you'd make a change, like if you're gonna feed direct fed microbials, which is a tablespoon for 30 days, it treats the hive for 30 days. And then the microbiome that you set up, by the way, gets passed around to the other bees through trophallaxis. So they're feeding one another. So um, all of this good stuff is being spread around. So it's not like you dose them and they're done. And then it dies out. It has like a shelf life, but no, it perpetuates within a colony. But do it to one or two colonies. Let's say you had four colonies, do 50% of them with that and uh, see if there's a difference. And there should be a marked difference, you should notice. So if they're living longer, right? If foragers are being produced at peak time of year, 1,500 eggs a day, let's say. And I'm not even totally sold on the number of eggs a queen produces and lays every day. She needs the space to lay them, they need the food to feed them, and uh, so that it's a collective, you know, they need to develop those eggs, larvae, pupa, and then the workers. But um, if you were losing them at 17 days, if they were all dead at that point, but then if you took some kind of microbial feed and then you were able to boost their immune system, because by the way, that company developed their products to offset the impact of agricultural practices. So those commercial apiaries that were adjacent to large agricultural plots uh, demonstrated a 5% increase in productivity than they had before when they were not being given these microbials. So if you're giving that stuff and you're getting bees to live longer day by day, that means that you should see a population increase in your backyard colony of bees. So... Lots of fun stuff to play with. But as far as why they're dying out, man, that's a, you got to look at the big picture. It's not just bees. I would bet you a lot of stuff is not doing as well as it used to. Look at even chickens. You know, they rotate chickens out fast. If, they're, if you're looking at them for production, for eggs, as soon as they go into a malt or something, they're using them for something else. They're not going to let them not be in lay. So an 18-month uh, lifespan for chickens to lay eggs. But if you were keeping chickens in your backyard with diverse forage and they were free ranging and nothing was eating them, you can get 
seven years out of a laying hen. They lay fewer eggs as they get older, but they lay bigger eggs and uh, they're still productive. But it all ties in with health, diversity, genetics. There's too many things at play there for somebody like me to just give a pat answer. But those are my suspicions. Question number eight. This is a hard name. Crayla Yowl from Waverly, Tennessee. I'm picking up a horizontal hive and an apame hive and beekeeper equipment and wax frames at the Hive Life Conference. I look forward to hearing you speak there. My question is, how do I store the hives and frames once I'm home until spring? Well, so here's the thing. Storing them is just a matter of where do you have space to store them. Um, you want to keep plastic things out of sunlight, of course, things like that. So you don't want to have them on some kind of outside rack. But when it comes to brand new equipment, even uh, if you're buying frames and if you're buying foundation, most people get plastic foundation. I know that uh, Premier will be there uh, and they have plastic foundation that's heavy waxed. And so when you're storing that stuff and it's never been used by bees, uh, it really doesn't matter. It's about the space you have. You can leave them right in your brand new beehives. Getting quite a collection here. Horizontal hives, that's probably from Horizontal Bees, which I highly recommend. Check those out, horizontalbees.com for those listening. Apame, which is the insulated hive, which I started using this year uh, just for evaluation purposes. And so you can go ahead and load your frames and everything right into your hive bodies. That's kind of your best storage. Another company that will be at Hive Life, which is in January, for those of you who've not heard of it, Sevierville, Tennessee. Just Google Hive Life Conference 2023, and uh, they still have some tickets left. So it's going to be a fantastic um, gathering of beekeepers, equipment, innovators, and everything else. But Hive Butler people will be there too, and I'm sure they'll be happy to sell you some hive butlers that are great for frame storage uh, because they closed up. Um, they close them up from, you know, pests and stuff getting in there. You're not going to have mice chewing them and stuff like that. But if your gear is brand new, uh, I don't think you have any concerns about it. Even people that buy like Better Comb, uh, Better Bee is going to be there. Uh, so they are the ones that sell Better Comb, which is pre-drawn uh, synthetic beeswax comb for starting out. Uh, they find that uh, wax moths and things like that don't get into them when they're brand new until the bees start to work it. So I think you're good to go. Just put them wherever uh, you have the space to store them. And for those of you who are thinking about beekeeping next year for the first time, consider a storage area. You're going to need lots of it. No one ever said, I have too much storage space for my bee stuff. If you're like me, I'm, I'm on top of all my gear all the time. And I did a lot of good organizing this year, but... There's never enough space. So try to be well organized for that. Question number nine, moving on, comes from David Love. And uh, we're in the northern state from New South Wales where the mites have been found. So this is Australia. The Varroa structure mite is there. I see you guys use OA on your hives with the supers still on. So OA is oxalic acid. Down here, we're being told that we will have to remove the supers before using OA. So you have to remove the honey that's going to be consumed by people before you can use oxalic acid. I have flow hives. What's the best way to remove the bees from the flow hives so I can use OA? Now, one of the things that, and I haven't 
looked it up, so I don't know what's going on with what the regulations are there, you know, regarding your use of oxalic acid. We had those restrictions here too, by the way. It took a long time before the United States nationally permitted the use of oxalic acid to treat as a varroicide uh, while leaving honey supers on. And the rest of the world was already approved for that. And it was just a matter of time. I think even some states today in the United States, I think California is one of them, where you're not allowed to use oxalic acid with honey supers on the hive. So you always have to check state and local requirements. But my question here is, what's their withdrawal period? In other words, if they've said you can't have uh, oxalic acid being used to control your varroa mites with your honey supers on, then they should also tell you how long does it have to be before you can put your honey supers back on. So if there's nothing in their literature that restricts you specifically to a set amount of time, like a week or 10 days or whatever, uh, then you could actually pull that honey super off, treat the bees, put it right back on. Your target bees are the ones that are in your brood chamber, the, the ones that are down on the brood, your nurse bees, because that's where most of your varroa destructor mites are gonna be. So me personally, I don't know if I would try to get all of my bees out of that uh, flow super just to treat with oxalic acid vaporization. Um, but if you wanted to, so that's one. So the first is I would just pull the super off, treat, or even get a cookie sheet, tilt the back of your flow super up, put the cookie sheet underneath, set the flow super back down on the cookie sheet, treat the brood box down below with oxalic acid. And uh, then once the treatment time frame is done, which is about 10 minutes, then you could tilt it up again, remove the cookie sheet and restore access to your flow super and the bees that are up there. But now let's say you wanna make sure as many bees as possible get hit with the oxalic acid. By the way, you're, you're never gonna get all your bees exposed. That's why the target is the brood area because you've always got foragers out. So if you're accessing the hive to do this work, it's probably gonna be mid afternoon. Thousands of bees will already be out of the hive. So tilting them and, and doing that. Now let's say you have to get it off and they're saying you know, you got to keep it off for five days or something. I don't know what the justification is. My other question is, how do they determine how much oxalic acid finds its way into your honey compared to untreated hives? So, for example, because we went through this here in the United States. I'm just giving you food for thought uh, because that was my question. So... If the levels of oxalic acid, which are ubiquitous, they're already there because so many plants have oxalic acid in it, oxalis is already in your honey now because it's already safe for human consumption at the levels that it occurs. Just for example, if you chopped up, you know, a pound of carrots and fed them to your family at dinner, uh, they just ate a full dose of oxalic acid. So... So this is why, you know, we kind of, you know, the wheels turned and they decided, the Department of Health, Food and Drug Administration decided that looking for levels of oxalic acid um, in honey wasn't ultimately worth it. And then that went down the road and then ultimately they said, aha, well,
because we can't measure a difference before and after treatment in the honey itself, then therefore we're going to approve it for honey supers being on. Now, not every state bought into that, and I don't know why. But uh, so let's say you have to get them off. So now you're going to put a bee escape under it. So you're in Australia. They probably have Cirrusel. That's a company, C-E-R-A-C-E-L-L. Cirrusel makes what's called the great escape. And they make it for eight frame or 10 frame hives. And it works on the flow hive. You would have to lift that super. By the way, a full flow super is going to run about 70 pounds. Think about it. So you're going to lift that off. You're going to put your escape board underneath. You're going to leave it there for 24 hours. And the next day, you're going to pull off that flow super and park it forever, however long they're saying the withdrawal period is. And then you can treat the colony and all your bees will be in the colony. They'll be frustrated. And then you come back after that withdrawal period and you put that flow super back on. But so we kind of went through it and the whole thing was, hmm, you're kind of overreacting to oxalic acid. So that's the best way to remove them. And then you put it back on and put them back to work. So, but I would need to know, like what is, by the way, if somebody would just write down uh, in the comment section what their recommendations are, what's the withdrawal period? Uh, can you restore the bees right away? Is it just during the active treatment cycle? Or every time, you know what I mean? What's, what are their concerns? I'd be interested to know more. Question number 10. Sal Capuano from Oregon House, California. Had a question about condensation in the observation hive. Do you do anything about it? If so, what? I live in Northern California and I keep an observation hive in my shed that is not temperature controlled. So it gets cold in there or hot. So I decided to cut out a piece of double bubble wrap that would fit right over the glass panels and covered it with plywood to try to keep the glass from becoming too cold. It seems to have reduced the condensation amount, not eliminated it, which I believe it is okay because bees do not, because bees do need a bit of moisture in the hive, even in winter. What are your thoughts about it? Thank you for your time. Okay. Uh, I have observation hives here. They're in buildings that are not heated. In fact, my first observation hive was in a bee shed, not heated. Uh, so what I've done and, and the bubble wrap, so the double bubble that we're all talking about all the time, which is how you get, you know, a tan and look good in pictures. So anyway, I made hot pockets for my observation hives. So I took double bubble, this stuff right here, I got it from Home Depot. And I created uh, little pockets out of it that I slid down over the top of the observation hives. And they're connected to the wall, so of course I had to insulate the wall where the observation hives are mounted. But the cool thing is, you know, for me, because I want to see where does the condensation accumulate and uh, what do the bees do about it? What's the impact on the bees? So when we get these warm days, these odd warm days, um, I pull the hot pockets off and I look at the hive and I see where the condensation forms. And it's always early in the morning, by the way, that you see the most condensation. And it's wherever the entrance is. So if I had a cluster of bees, like this is your observation hive, the entrance is down here. And the other thing is I don't want the entrance all the way on the bottom. I want it bottom 20%, 10% through the side. So there's always a band of condensation directly under wherever the bees are clustered. 
above them, there is no condensation or very tiny amounts of condensation up in the upper corners, not directly over the cluster, which is very important. So by putting a hot pocket over it, and this is the first winter I'm doing that. So in the past, all I did was put insulation panels directly against the face of the observation hive. So I had two inch, which is an R10, rigid foam board insulation, and I clamped it on. And uh, so then around the perimeter of the hive, it was an inch and a half thick pine which is not very much when it comes to the R value. So this year, I think they're much better ahead. And if you're doing what's described here with the double bubble, and then you've got plywood over the top of that, you've really encapsulated the observation hive. And so just with my double bubble, little hot pockets, I call them, sitting on the hive and just up against the wall, uh, they're 11 degrees warmer on the outside of the hive inside the double bubble than the outside air temperature in the building. So it's working. Uh, it's given a 10, a 10 degree or 11 degree boost in temperature in winter time. So if it's 32 degrees outside and I'm getting 42 to 45 inside, that really is gonna help them in the winter time. But the condensation, just as you described here, unless it's over the cluster dripping on them, it's not a negative. They use the humidity. There are always bees licking the driplets. As soon as it's warm enough for them to loosen up their cluster, they are, they're accessing that condensate inside the hive and they're using it to metabolize the honey that they've got stored. So it is a benefit. What you don't want to see is a lot of it directly over the top of them. And if I found that condition, so if I pulled off my hot pockets and I looked and there was a bunch of water now concentrating, or if I could start to see mold growing and stuff like that, directly over the cluster, then I would start looking at stronger insulation, thicker insulation. So right now, all I have is the double bubble. I don't even have the wooden thing outside of that. Just little like pillowcases made out of double bubble and the bottom's open. It's not a complete enclosure. So they're just sleeves that go over the top. The bottom is open. And because I have little trays I can pull out to look for varroa mites and things like that, um, that's all I have and it's looking really good. So I think you're not having a problem with that. I think what you've described should work great. So I have uh, the sensor is not just a temperature sensor, it's a humidity sensor as well. And the humidity inside the hot pocket, outside the hive is generally lower. So the temperature's up, humidity is lower. It's very interesting. So just keeping records, observing, but I think, uh, I think what you've described is going to work really well, especially in Northern California. How bad can life be? That sounds like a great location. Question number 11 comes from James Barron. If I've not mistaken, I've heard you say that you don't venture hives. Are you saying the only opening to the outside elements is a 3 8 inch by 2 inch hive entrance? No screen bottom board. No ventilation through the inner cover. Everything is sealed tight. Yes, that is what I do. I hear everyone say the moisture will condense and kill your bees in the winter if there is no ventilation out the top of the hive. Okay, if that were true, all of my hives would be dead. So it seems to me like sealing the hive 
your way, if I'm not mistaken, would reduce moisture better and also be easier on the bees by not burning calories to stay warm. True. Another question I have is when winter feeding dry sugar on top of newspaper. That's called, by the way, the mountain camp method. And I use newsprint if I were to do that. Not just newspaper, but newsprint with no print on it. Could the double bubble silver insulation be laid directly on top of the sugar and the bees be able to move under it to feed on the sugar or do they need a little bee space? Okay, so let's say, for example, you've got the frames of the, the hive and on top of that, you put your newsprint on top of the frames and then you took your sugar and poured it on there and the newsprint keeps the sugar from just falling down in there and hopefully it's really delayed because we want condensation to form up in here and to solidify that sugar to turn it into like a sugar block. In fact, if you could add some water to your sugar already so it doesn't just pour around and then like maybe even a paste and just put it on there and that would go a long way to helping. And then the next question to that is, could you put this double bubble stuff? So you've got your newsprint, you've got your dry sugar poured up here, but I'd like to so you add a little moisture to it just to get it to hold its place. And then you put double bubble over the top of that that covers the entire surface. Could the bees work under the double bubble? Yes, they could because you want the thickness of the sugar that you put on there to be at least how, how thick. Most people put about four pounds of sugar up there. So you've got easily three eighths of an inch of sugar up there. So you've got a a layer of sugar that's three-eighths of an inch across the top. Then you've got your double bubble on that. Your bees are gonna eat up into the sugar through the paper. They're gonna discard the paper. And as they consume the sugar, they will be working underneath the double bubble. So yes, they have free access to everything. Not only that, the bees, uh, when a bunch of them get up there and they're feeding together, if the double bubble had settled a little bit, just the weight of it, they will push it up and move through. I haven't done it. I just know they're going to do that. Um, and that's because they're going to consume the sugar when they can. Condensation is going to form up there under the double bubble, which is going to benefit the bees when they're trying to metabolize the sugar because they need water to metabolize that dry sugar that's up there. So, but I do recommend dampening the sugar a little bit. Try to turn it into a little bit of a sugar brick or a sugar paste at least. Uh, it helps the bees metabolize the sugar. So yeah, that's going to work. Let's see, yeah, if it's the wrong time of year, or you put dry sugar up there and it just starts to pour down over, you know, your frames and stuff like that, that's where it's kind of a pickle. Because um, I have seen bees hauling it right out the entrance before. I posted videos of that on my YouTube channel. But if you use something like this and just put your dry sugar in here, it's never gonna pour out and the bees are not gonna haul it out. This is gonna form condensation inside here, which is gonna help them metabolize your sugar. So I'll wrap it around over the hole. But mountain camp sometimes is right on the frames. This would be placed on top of your inner cover. Then you could have double bubble around it and double bubble over the top of it. Food for thought. So that's that for James. Question number 12 
final question of the day. So I want to thank you guys for being here with me. Anyway, Mark Johnson, Mineral Bluff, Georgia. Says, always good advice. I live in extreme North Georgia mountains and would like to try grafting queens this spring. Everyone says, one to two day larvae. Why don't eggs work in grafting? Okay, so let me just be honest about that part there. I don't graft queens. And uh, I have the grafting tools, like I have this cool one, which I'm going to plug Pierce Beekeeping because uh, Randy McCaffrey, Dirt Rooster, uh, got one of these from Pierce and he gave it to a grafter that does thousands a day. And that guy endorsed this as one of probably the best grafting tools. So if I were grafting, I just wanted to mention Pierce Beekeeping's grafting tool. But um, why don't eggs work? I think eggs do work. I think eggs are more difficult to work with because, keep in mind, I'm not a professional grafter. Just a master beekeeper who knows about it. But I would have too many queens. There's nothing I can do about it. I also have the Nico system which I don't use because again, I do walk away splits. I pull eggs, I put eggs in, I let the bees make their own queen cells. I don't do it, but there are people that do it. They do a lot of it. So today I thought I would tie this in with my shout out for today. So who am I going to give a shout out to? Hmm, very interesting. Um, I'm going to give a shout out to Cayman Reynolds and uh, has nothing to do with the fact that he's also the founder of the feast for the Hive Life Conference 2023. Cayman Reynolds has a YouTube titled Raising Queens, Grafting to Incubation. I think it's a really good demonstration. He goes right on into incubation. So he doesn't just stop at grafting. He talks about grafting tools. He uses a little Chinese grafting tool. I mean, there's a bunch of like anything in beekeeping, you know, there's a bunch of different, these are grafting tools. There's a stainless steel, super skinny grafting tool like this one. And uh, when it becomes a thing, something that you do, you'll begin to bend these around and modify them yourself. And if you really get into grafting, but I'm always curious when people really dive into grafting, how many queens do you need? I would just, you know, I, I need like three queens. What would I do? So if I were a commercial beekeeper, I probably, it would be a big deal for me. If you're selling queens and nucleus packages and things like that, you're going to learn to graft. And so I'm going to step out of, I, I know when I'm not the guy to be demonstrating or explaining it in great detail, because I just don't do it. That's why I'm sending you to Cayman Reynolds. Please look for the link down in the video description, or just go straight to Cayman Reynolds channel, Tennessee Bees. And, uh, the title of the video is Raising Queens, Grafting to Incubation. So tell Cayman, I said hello. And we're all looking forward to seeing him at Hive Life. It's going to be a great gathering. And that's all my questions for today. So just going out, what I would like to say in closing is this thing about feeding your bees. For those of you who have just started winter, these winter storms are already here. So if you're like me, it's too late. You're, you're buttoned up. Um, but I do not think you could, that it would be too early to put Hive Live or a Fondant Pack or something like that on there. Last year, uh, 
none of the colonies even consumed one of these all the way. But also, none of the colonies that had one of these on it died in spring. So it was very comforting for me because, you know, this is the stage of beekeeping that we're at. And this is where beekeeping is not fun. All summer long, we can go out, we can look at our bees, we can see what they're doing, we can see how they're how they're getting along, you know, if they might be queenless or something like that. But now we're in the long sleep. So they're in a state of torpor because honeybees do not hibernate. So now we're just waiting it out. So this is hard for beekeeping. So this is where you, you go to conferences. You, you study up. You get the latest books on beekeeping. You start buying gifts for beekeepers because it's Christmas time. And... Uh, so this is the waiting game. You've done everything that you can do. But one of the things I like about having an insulated inner cover, which I started last year, they worked fantastic. Be Smart Designs, insulated inner covers. You can get them from Better Bee and probably other sources too. Um, now they're insulated down below. And the same question, well, what happens if that insulation causes those bees to migrate up to the top of the colony too early? And then on top of the insulation, that little hole this fondant sits on here. So the comforting part for me, the part that's gonna help me sleep better at night, I can pull the outer cover on a day when let's say it hits 50 degrees or something because I'm not letting the heat out of the hive, pull that insulated outer cover and I look and I see a little hole and I take a grease pencil and I mark the edge of where they've worked it right now. And then I button everything right back up. So I do that fast. But then the next time I check, I can look at my grease pencil mark and I'll know, hey, they're making progress. Or you can, you can use a Sharpie. I don't know whatever you want to use, but grease pencils, I just have them because that's also what I mark the frames with and stuff. But then that's comforting and it'll help calm you about your bees and you won't be stressing all winter long, just wondering if they're making it. And so I recommend it because I'm here in the state of Pennsylvania and I know that they did not finish one. So 27 colonies. I make sure that I have 27 of these out. Uh, the lay-ins hive did not get them because there's no place to put them. So I have two lay-ins colonies that are not getting them. Observation hives. I don't have a good place uh, to put fondant so they didn't get them. There's three observation hives uh, but they all have plenty of honey. So in my next iteration of my observation hive, I will have a means of providing fondant in the wintertime as an emergency resource. But they're so full of honey. They did a great job. They're well situated and they're inside a building. So they're not exposed to blowing air and things like that. So that's the one thing I would recommend if you were somebody that's learning beekeeping for me for your backyard, fondant on every hive now. And if you get a warm-up for a week or whatever, don't take it off. Leave it there. And just try to keep up with it through winter. The other thing that I would like people to do now, because the storm is here, obviously don't go out while it's snowing a foot. Not a foot, but they're getting two inches an hour or something ridiculous. Uh, this is the time if you have a thermal camera, you can do thermal scans to see where your warm air leaks are on your hives. You can walk around and get right down at the level where the box is joined together and see if there's any gaps. And uh, if there are any gaps, you might consider using a bungee cord or something to cover that and just uh, help close it up for the bees because it's too late for them to seal things off. 
So that's my advice. Uh, also make sure things are tied down. Winter storms, you don't want to see a bunch of beehives blown over in a winter storm. And that's pretty much it. So I want to thank you for joining me today. If you're brand new and you haven't subscribed to my channel, I invite you to subscribe uh, for future things. Also, this is available as a podcast. All of them are available as a podcast. You can listen while you're driving or doing chores or whatever you want to do. And I want to thank you for spending your time with me today and uh, look forward to sharing with you through the winter. This is where I do product reviews and things like that. Uh, because we can't be working the bees. So there's still stuff coming up, and I hope you'll stick with me. Have a fantastic and hopefully warm weekend.